I invite you to uh, turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be giving our attention today to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. This is is one of those texts that takes us into the deeps. Uh, This is not the shallow end of the pool. And... uh, Due to the length of the text um, that we're going to focus on today, I'm I'm not going to ask you to stand uh, as I read it. I'm going to read it section by section as we move along. But I I would ask you um, that as I, when I do read the verses section by section, that you would be so mindful that uh, this is God's holy and authoritative word. So, pray with me. We do turn to you, Lord. Trusting in a promise today that you look to those you set your gaze upon, you pour your favor out on those who are humble, contrite of spirit, and who tremble at your word. Your word is trembling worthy. And this text in particular uh, causes us to tremble. So we're hoping, Lord, in this promise that you will look to us, that you will cause your face to shine upon us in in the Lord Jesus, and that you would drive darkness away cast fear away, that you would engender in us and among us great confidence in who you are and your goodness and your wisdom and your righteousness and your justice and all your glory would be put on display and you would be exalted and we would praise you, Lord, and it would satisfy our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Of all the temptations that we face, uh, I I wonder if the one that we have most in common (laughs) is uh, is the temptation to question the goodness of God. And I say common temptation, not the the most common sin, but the most common temptation. it's, It's not all common to... Praise God, um, to, to hear one, praise the Lord, it's not all common, that we would hear one another grumbling and slandering the Lord. That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. The, the disappointments, frustrated expectations, desires unfulfilled, profound losses, heartbreaking griefs, at some point or another, we, we all experience them all. And when we do, is it not also common? that we hear a voice somewhere nearby saying something to the effect, and you believe God is good. You believe God's looking out for your interests. You believe that God will keep you safe. 
You believe that God would never let you down. You believe that God would never let you suffer. Well, well, well. What do you think of him now? In, in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a hope-saturated and exultant exclamation of praise, right? And then comes Romans chapter 9. The very next verse, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Why joyfully confident in God's great love and yet ceaselessly aching? Why? Well, for or because I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, According to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen? So perhaps the circumstances that, that provokes the most conflicting emotions in the life of a believer is the entangled sweetness of one's own salvation with the unimaginable thought that the one or the ones we love and care about the most are willfully and persistently, sometimes angrily, rejecting Christ as their Savior and Lord. As a a ten-year-old who had prayed to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, I wept. I remember crawling into my parents' bed with them and weeping at my father's defiant unbelief. I still remember it. As an adult, my most passionate pleadings in prayer with God 
were that my sons would experience new birth and follow Jesus. And now, my, my interceding shifts into another gear when I express to the Lord my affection and desire for the genuine conversion of my grandchildren. And, and such was the focal point, I believe, of Paul's mental grief, soul agony. It's as though... It's as though the glorious salvation doctrines of divine election, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, sanctification, glorification that he has just expounded only made him suffer all the more. Look at verse 3. I could wish, and we're not sure if he actually does wish or just theoretically, Maybe he doesn't, but could. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. It's, it's as though Paul's experiencing some kind of survivor's guilt. right? I, I, would, I would be willing to face the wrath of God myself if only they would believe. Loved ones, I I believe that God knows our fears, and he knows our questions, and he knows our temptations, and he addresses them for our peace and for our hope, and above all, for the sake of the praise of his glorious grace. Now, before we look at the questions that Paul raises, the questions that Paul raises in Romans chapter 9, I want to ask you to bear with me as I just register gently a common and pervasively accepted assumption. I believe that we have been trained, at least I know that I was, we've been trained to assume that human Self-determination is a feature of biblical thinking. Human self-determination. We assume that that is, is a feature. It's just a biblical notion. It's a biblical teaching. It's a biblical conviction. And because we assume that human self-determination is a fundamental feature of correct biblical thinking, Paul's discussion about God's sovereignty over who is saved and who is not saved, it is emotionally jarring. So I want to ask you, again, gently, to do something that I know is not easy to do. I want to ask you to just Pause. Hit the pause button on that assumption and consider honestly whether or not the Bible actually supports that assumption. Ultimate self-determination as a trait of one's will, maybe it is taught in Scripture. Or maybe it's not. 
So this is how I'd want to challenge you. Just let that assertion be decided by the teaching of Scripture and not from assumptions that you may bring to the text. Our first question should always be, people who, who hold this to be God's authoritative word, our, our, our first question should always be, what does the text of Scripture teach us about reality? So, I urge you not to bring to the text your own philosophical assumptions that would in turn then dictate or define what God's wisdom, goodness, and justice must do. Does that make sense? Hope so. So so the first challenge to the notion of God's goodness has to do with the trustworthiness of God's word. Can God's word actually be trusted? When Paul looks at his Jewish kinsmen, his brothers and sisters, and he sees them rejecting Jesus as the Messiah of God, it provokes a question. Has God's word failed? Or, to say it another word, wait, can God be trusted to keep his promises? After all, Aren't the Jews God's chosen people? That's what the Bible says. Out of all the nations of the earth through which God might assert his saving purpose and plan, it was with Israel he established the covenants. It was to Israel he delivered the Ten Commandments. It was to Israel and through Israel that God communicated himself. It was to Israel and through Israel that God promised a savior. Remember, a savior, a snake-crushing savior's son. To and through Israel, God promised a wonderful counselor who is God, Father, Prince of Peace, Redeemer King, who rules over all. If any people on earth should turn and trust and exult in Jesus as Lord in Christ, just look at the Old Testament people, and one would conclude, would they not, it should be Israel. But Paul's Jewish kinsmen are not turning and trusting and exulting in Jesus. Why not? Is it because God's word has proven to be insufficient to bring about what it holds out as a promise? Is it because God is unable to fulfill what he has said that he would do? And Paul anticipates this question. And he answers it in verse 6. It is not as though God, the word of God, has failed. Oh, really? (laughs) Really? How so? For or because, here's the answer, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return. Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, why don't God's so-called chosen people believe? Is God's saving purpose being thwarted? Is God's promise failing? Is God's power proving to be limited and insufficient? Whoa, can God really be trusted? Answer. God's word has not failed. How so? Not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean that not all Israel is Israel? Not all national Israel is spiritual Israel. And the reason the Jews are rejecting the gospel is not because God's word is failing. The Jews are not rejecting the gospel because God can't be trusted to keep his promises. The reason the Jews are rejecting the gospel is because God only promised to save the elect. Salvation has nothing to do with ethnic privilege. Salvation has nothing to do with the faith of your parents. Salvation has nothing to do with birth order or the merit of your good works or any other category of human self-determination. The reason someone, anyone, turns and trusts Christ is ultimately because of, verse 11, Him who calls. So, when the ones we care about most are rejecting Christ and your heart is breaking, and you are tempted to believe that God's word has failed. Or he's not faithful in keeping his promises. Promises like, what about promises like 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But they are perishing. <laughs> or they have already perished. And that makes us suffer. 
and they perished without Christ. Why is it that God chooses not to carry that wish of his forward into the accomplishment of his wish? Why? Well, there's two possible ways to go, I think. One, God is somehow hindered by ultimate human determination. That is, God has given to humankind the power of decisive ultimate self-determination so that man and not God provides the decisive cause in that choice not to come to Christ. It's one possibility. Or the other possibility is that God has a wise and holy and good purpose for not bringing his wish to fruition. And you see, according to Romans 9.11, God does have a purpose. Namely, that God's purpose of election might continue. That is, not because of works, but because of him who calls. But the whole matter then of divine election, for many, immediately provokes another question. It provokes another question. How is this fair? Or as Paul writes, is there injustice on God's part? Doesn't divine election undermine equal opportunity? Fairness. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? can almost anticipate the crowd saying, yes, if that's what you believe, yes. Paul says, by no means. But Paul, how can you say that? How can you say that God's not unjust? For or because God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power. In you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, or therefore, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So, how is it then? Why is it then that God's not unjust? How does God defend his goodness? Loved ones, um, an, an essential element in the 
godness. Is that a word? <laughs> An essential element in the godness of God is his freedom. It's his sovereignty. That, that, that is, God's very godness consists in his freedom to do whatever he wills. That's what makes him God and us not. What sets God apart from all created beings is that he is non-contingent. God is not a responder to his creation. He is sovereign Lord over his creation. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, this is the text that Paul's quoting in, in Romans 9. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses says to God, please show me your glory, which is such an astonishing thing. Because if anybody, anybody who you know, has seen plagues and you know, the miracle of the sea parted and manna from heaven, please, come on, show me your glory. And God said, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God says, okay, Moses, you know, I know you want to see me more, more of me. You want to know more of me. Up to now, you've only seen part of my goodness. Now I'm going to take you deeper than you've ever gone before. I'm going to show you all my goodness. And what you really need to see in order to know me, to behold me as I am, is my self-existence and my sovereign freedom to choose to do whatever I decide to do and to choose whomever I will choose and to be merciful to whomever I choose to be merciful and to display compassion on whom I choose to display compassion. And we say, how is that good? How is God determining by himself whom he shows mercy? How is that good news? Loved ones, I believe it's good news because in verse 16 Paul writes, So then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion. What is the it? According to verse 15, it refers to receiving God's compassion. It is receiving God's mercy. And that's good news because... It, the receiving of compassion and mercy from God, depends on God. And the reason it's good news that it, that is receiving compassion and mercy from God, depends on God, is because all we ever merit is wrath. 
That's all we deserve. If it, receiving God's compassion and mercy, depended on us, then loved ones, there would be no hope for anyone. If receiving mercy from God was based on self-determination, which, by the way, I believe that verse 16, like, the possibility of it is completely eliminated. If it, if it was based on us, we'd all be doomed. Now, how does Pharaoh play into all this? <laughs> Verse 16, Paul says that neither human will or exertion play any part in salvation. And then he supports that assertion by calling attention to Pharaoh. You know, that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who so famously refused to free from slavery the people of Israel. He draws, he draws attention to Pharaoh, and, and he comes to this conclusion in verse 18. So then, therefore, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he, he wills. And, and that's a strange conclusion because um, for, for him to come to in verse 18... Because verse 17 says nothing about Pharaoh's hard heart. I believe it's because Paul's aim here is to, to demonstrate above all else that the purpose of God, the justice of God, the rightness of God, or we would say righteousness of God, his commitment to doing what's most right. God's rightness in showing mercy on whomever he chooses to show mercy and hardening whomever he chooses to harden. Those things together put on display God's ultimate purpose. Namely, the display of his glory. Here's what I mean. The, the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart led to, led to this, verse 17. For this very purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What's the ultimate purpose and aim of God? To display his massive, unchallenged glory and power, and wisdom, greatness. For God to be God, he must do what has to be done to be God. And so for God to be righteous, God must, for God to be just, he must be committed to what is most right. And what is most right? Him. He's most right. And what is most right for God then is to be unswervingly faithful to himself and to the revelation of all that he is. All his goodness. And God's glory is most powerfully and most pervasively revealed through, and listen carefully, it's revealed through mercy and through 
wrath, or as the text says, the hardening of hearts. Now that raises yet another question, right, regarding God's goodness. If this is what God's committed to, showing His glory, showing the glory of the greatness of all that He is, and part of His greatness is justice against sin, showing wrath against sin, and part of His glory is revealing mercy. Mercy is the one that sets Him apart. Mercy is the crown jewel. Mercy is the summit. There's no, no other God that shows mercy. So if that's what God is committed to, then how does he find fault with us? If God ultimately determines who is the beneficiary, the object of his display of mercy, and God is ultimately the one who determines who is not, that is who's going to be the object of the display of his wrath, well then how can God hold us accountable? Right? Isn't that, that's the question that comes to everybody's mind. And Paul's answer is in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? We're right there with you. That's the question we're thinking. And then Paul offers what perhaps to many might be considered a rather unsatisfying response. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So Paul's response doesn't really resolve the mystery, does it? One commentator writes, If we demand an explanation for how this can be, namely that God freely chooses who is hardened, and yet they have real guilt we will probably be disappointed in this life. What Paul does affirm, however, is that since we are not God, since we are not God, we therefore have no grounds to accuse God of wrongful fault-finding. Since God's the molder, the potter, in other words, the creator, he has certain unalienable rights as God. Now, that, that doesn't mean that God's like capricious or arbitrary or you know, kind of random in his actions. It's actually quite the opposite. He is profoundly purposeful in his actions. He does, in fact, have a rationale for doing things the way he does. Look at verses 22 through 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, God's aim is to put his glory on display and, 
and wrath against sin, divine justice, that's part of his glory. So what if he, his desire is to show his glory this way, his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and here's the purpose, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So have you ever wondered why God allows evil? Consider the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the purpose of God, who, who does not merely, he doesn't just tolerate evil. He doesn't just put up with hard-hearted people. Rather, consider the matchless greatness of God who has endured with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known his power and to put on display the riches of his glory in mercy. How do you show mercy? How do you put mercy on display? Unless there's something to show mercy on. God could be merciful, but we would never behold mercy. You'd never see it. Unless there was a way of expressing it. And there's no way of expressing mercy unless there is someone to have mercy on. Namely, vessels of wrath. So, how can God be good? How can he allow evil and then express wrath against evil? God's purpose is to make known, that is to put on display the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. This is the crown jewel. This is the thing that sets him apart. Listen, God endures evil people. He allows them to exist for a purpose, namely for the purpose of showing his glory, the glory of his mercy to others. In other words, wrath is not an end in itself. Rather, wrath is a means to the end of displaying the glory of God's mercy. And how can God display mercy unless there are people on whom to express mercy? And how can there be people on whom to express mercy unless there are people on whom rests God's wrath? Here's another way to think about it. I think, it was, I, think I was sick for about five or six weeks between November and, and January. It seemed like I could not shake this cold thing or whatever it was. And um, you, you just start feeling, you feel lousy for so long. And then all of a sudden one day you feel good and you just go, wow, I'm alive again. I'm alive again. You don't appreciate your health unless you've been sick for a long time. Or, we tend not to appreciate spring unless we've endured a long, hard winter. And the glory of God's mercy 
is not as glorious a treasure without the dark terror of God's wrath. And so evil exists for an end, for a purpose. And that is as a backdrop to show how rich and beautiful God's mercy is. And so Paul offers this illustration then, beginning in verse 25. As indeed God says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Stunning. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isn't this what we need to tell the world? That God is holy. And that God is righteous. And that God is just. And that God hates sin with eternal hatred. And that God will punish it. But praise be to God. Having revealed the glory and the goodness, the rightness of his justice and wrath, he goes on to reveal the matchless, lavish riches of all his goodness, including his love for his own and his purpose to redeem them mercifully to the praise of the power, unthwartable power of his glorious grace and that his might, his power, his fame might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is the unquestionable goodness of God. Let's pray. It just seems, Lord, that the only fitting response is to stand silent before you. 